What a wonderful morning of worship already. I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to John 19. John 19, verses 18 through 22. John 19, verses 18 through 22. As I'm going to share with you the message this week as we come to the next place in the text. And I can honestly say I've never thought about this before, this aspect. Um, there are about five messages, I believe, if my calculations are right, uh, between now and Easter Sunday. And the intention is to preach John 20 on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. And there, um, there were several messages before, and this is the one I was struggling with the most of these leading up to John chapter 20. But this morning's message is called, Do You See What's Nailed There? Do you see what's nailed there? And as we look in the text today, hopefully you will see what the Lord has shown me this week, and perhaps it will bless you as it has blessed me. So beginning in chapter 19 and verses 18 through 22, it says, They crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So finally, after all the deliberation, Pilate finally gains his spine. And he says, listen, this is how it's going to be. But to this morning, do you see what is nailed there? You know, it's one thing to look at something. It's another thing to be able to perceive beyond what you see. And if you have information that would otherwise tell you that there's something more going on here than is actually going on, you're able to see things that perhaps others are not. Today at 2 o'clock, we will be having the funeral service for Mr. Elton Williams at Lee Memorial Park Funeral Home. Brother Elton, 85 years old, is a First Baptist Church bed baby. He has been a member of First Baptist Church since nine months before he was born. Now, we don't accept newborns as members. Not really, right? We know how Baptists work. But you know what I'm saying. He has been here his whole life. Well, he is married to his precious wife, Miss Macy Williams, and Brother Elton passed away this past week. I had a project that I started at the close of COVID, and that was to try to meet with every member of the church in their home or out for lunch or if in some place come up to the church. And I've been continuing to do that. Of course, during the COVID times, things slow down and speed up, things like that. But I've done approximately 80 of these so far. And if I have not been able to do that with you or your family, 
then please help me can complete that. Uh, that's one of my desires is to be able to do that, to meet with you. And you say, well, how would I do that? You can just call the church and just say, hey, we'd like to visit with Brother Matt. I remember the first visit I went on here, went here, a home visit, when I was a pastor of First Baptist. I'm trying to, I can't remember exactly who it was, but I remember what happened. I went in and I said hello, and uh, I just started talking about life because I was just visiting, and the person said, Brother Matt, no, what's the nature of today's visit? And I said, oh, um, I was just coming by to say hey. And they said, oh, I thought when the pastor came by, something bad had happened. So I said, no, this is just to get to know you. <laughs> no one's died, and I don't think you're about to die or anything like that. I, I just, just coming by to say hey. So this is not for me to come to your house to make a funeral arrangement. This is just for me to get to know you. But anyway, on this particular day, I went out to Elton and Macy's, and I took my daughter, Ainsley, who was four years old at the time. She's still four. And one other piece of information, if you see my daughter, Ashlyn, she turns 15 today. 15 years old, if you see her, and she gets her permit at 8.30 in the morning, so God be with you. <laughs> but anyway, Ainsley and I went to the Williams house, and I told Ainsley, I said, now, Ainsley, I said, honey, uh, Mr. Elton and Miss Macy are senior adults, and uh, when you go in, it'll be like visiting Papa and Nana, and you love to visit Papa and Nana. I said, so you know how to act, right? She said, oh, yeah, Daddy, I know how to act. I said, so when we go in there, you'll, you'll be quiet. and think, Oh, yeah, 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 I've got, I've got it, Dad, just like Papa and Nana. So we go in, and we're visiting with Elton and Macy, and all of a sudden, Ainsley, who was sitting with me, gets out of my lap, walks across the living room, and does fingers like this to Miss Macy to have her lean down to speak to her, and she whispers something in her ear. And all of a sudden, they disappear. They're gone. And then she comes back out of the kitchen with a big chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, and then she whispered something else in uh, Miss Macy's ear, and then they went to the back room, and then she came out, and there were toys to play with. And I said, Miss Macy, I said, um, what, what did she tell you? She said, uh, well, she said she came over and said, I'd like a cookie. <laughs> and so, so we went and got one. And then she said the second thing she asked is, where's the playroom? <laughs> and what's sweet about that is every time they go to my grandparents, they ask my grandmother for a cookie. And then they go and play in the playroom. But anyway, I was sitting there thinking, I was hoping she would be able to understand that to be respectful and be quiet and to, to see Mr. and Miss Williams. And I was hoping she would understand the nature of our visit, my little four-year-old. And she understood it exactly the way I told her. This is just like visiting Papa and Nana. And she was able to see them in a way that I was not able to see them that day. And that blessed, blessed me much. Today's main statement is this. You can only understand the man on the middle cross who the man on the middle cross is once you accept the inscription on your cross. You can only understand who the man on the middle cross is once you accept the inscription on your cross. Let's talk about this passage today. First of all, let's talk about the cross. Jesus is being crucified. What is that all about? Well, the cross was primarily reserved for non-Roman capital 
criminals, enemies of the state, so to speak, enemies of the Roman Empire. They would crucify foreigners. They would not do this to Romans. Most Roman criminals, that would be Roman citizens, were beheaded privately to not bring shame upon them or to bring shame upon their family or the Roman name. Um, However, non-Roman criminals were crucified publicly, hung there to be exposed, often stripped completely naked and brutally beaten in front of their community. Crucifixion was Rome rubbing their cultural, racial, and militaristic domination over their conquered peoples. Crucifixion was to be a message sent to the people who lived within the borders of their empire. You cross us, this is what happens to you. We can put you to death in the worst possible way that we know how, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop us. So, crucifixion was Rome rubbing their cultural, racial, and militaristic domination over their conquered people. Also, crucifixion was not a punishment by the majority. It was the all-powerful state stripping every ounce of humanity off a man or a woman. While crucifixion was primarily reserved for men, there were many women who were also crucified by the Romans, especially if the woman was had committed a heinous crime against the state. It was not beyond the Romans for crucifying even a woman. And the manner in which they would crucify people would be to slowly strip all the humanity off of them, to beat them worse than anyone would ever even beat an animal that they hated, to humiliate them, to expose them to the elements that they just dry up and die. It was such an evil, such a terrible way to die. And to top it off, it was not punishment by the majority. If Israel was to put someone to death, their community had to come together after the person had been found guilty, and the community would throw stones upon the condemned, and it would be community justice. That is not necessarily so with Rome. Rome could decide at any moment to exercise their power and crucify people that they do not like. In fact, back long before Jesus was born, but Rome was already occupying uh, the place of Palestine, the area of Israel there, there were over 600 Pharisees crucified at one time by the Roman Empire. The cross was a means of stripping every ounce of dignity that had remained from the beating off of the condemned. And it was primarily reserved for non-Roman capital criminals. And this is what Jesus had presented as a non-Roman capital criminal. And so thus, we move to our next thing, which is the inscription. Most every cross had an inscription nailed to it along with the person being crucified. This is something that I had not paid attention to before. I knew the sign was there. I knew the placard was there, which announced in Greek and Hebrew and Latin 
Jesus, or excuse me, not Hebrew, Aramaic and Latin, the announcement of what Jesus was condemned for. You see, the condemned were often required to wear the placard of their sentence as they carried their crosses to the place of their execution. Look back down in verse number 19. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It's read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was Roman practice that after the guilty had become condemned, that they would make a placard containing their sentence and that frequently, unless it was a rushed crucifixion, the condemned would have to wear the placard, the inscription around their neck as they carried their cross to their place of crucifixion. Or if they were unable to do so, they would have someone go before the condemned carrying the placard to announce to all of the onlookers why this man was being crucified. So they were often required to wear the placard of their sentence as they carried their crosses to the place of their execution, which leads me to this point that I just never thought about before. The guilt inscription was nailed to their cross. I'd never thought about this aspect. I'd thought about Jesus being nailed to the cross. I'd thought about the thieves crucified to His left and right being nailed to the cross. It never occurred to me that the thieves would have had a placard nailed to their cross as well saying that they were being crucified for being rebels against the state or robbers or whatever it is, insurrectionists. Their condemnation would have been nailed to their cross as well. And here Jesus has His guilt, so to speak, nailed His cross. He is guilty of being King of the Jews. Now what's interesting is the inability of everyone in the story, minus one we're going to look at at the end, and of course minus Jesus. Everyone in the story, no one is able to make sense of the guilt sentence of Jesus. Which leads me to this, is that if you cannot see your inscription, you will not be able to accept Jesus' inscription. Friends, imagine the humiliation of being summed up by a sentence which emphasized the worst decision of your life. I'm not talking about Jesus here. I'm talking about all the other criminals, everyone else who had ever been crucified. To have your life summed up in a single moment and have that nailed above your head as you hang there and die. That was crucifixion. To have a word or a phrase sum you up and humiliate you for all to see. You know, some never accept their inscription. Some of the criminals and the thieves, those who had been crucified, murderers and so what, so on and so forth, never accepted their inscription. In fact, if you look in Matthew 27, 37 through 44, the scripture says this. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And notice this statement in verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. It's interesting that the Jews are arguing with Pilate over the inscription of Jesus as king. And then the Jews present at the cross are insulting in him and mocking him for his inscription. And then even the criminals who were crucified next to Jesus, who had had their own guilt sentence nailed to their cross above their head, are not contemplating what's above their head. They are only looking at Jesus and making fun of what is taking place there. Some never accept their inscription. It is the case that we live, and I guess it's always been, we live in a judgmental age. We live in a judgmental age that is so quick to point out the offenses of others, and it is, I don't fully understand it. Maybe it's not the culture of which I was raised, but one of the things, one of the things that we see today in our culture, in our nation, in our world, just the just a hatred and a bitterness towards we, each other and a willingness to point out every little thing that was wrong with someone that we don't like while all the while ignoring everything about us. These thieves were ignoring what was over their own head while pointing the finger at Jesus. Now, don't think that just being judgmental and hypocritical and all those things are things are, that are for outside the people of God. It can happen within the people of God. I was listening to a, a man tell a story one time. He'd grown up at a very, very strict Christian college, and there were a lot of rules and things to abide by and expectations. And he and his buddies got in trouble one night, and they went out and they started drinking and they got drunk and that was strictly against the rules there at this at this religious school but the irony was he was the only one that got caught the rest of his buddies were fine well he said because it was a religious school he said the religious school practiced a process of shunning and discipline that he said, I received discipline for what I did. And he said, you know what? I, I really understood that because I, I had done wrong. He said, but what was frustrating was that I was to be shunned after I had done this deed by the people in the school as a means of exercising discipline by the majority on me. And he said, you know what? I, I understand that too. I mean, that's the rules. He said, the problem was the people that got drunk with me shunned me too. 
Judgment can happen even in the house of God. People so willing to point the finger at someone else. Never occurring that there may be an inscription above their own head. Some never accept their inscription. Also, some blame others for their inscription. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, this one particular criminal that is being crucified gets so angry, in fact, he calls out and he says to him, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. The word that says there, for instance, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, the word there is also translated elsewhere, blasphemed him. This was not a genuine request for save me. This was a mocking and a pointing out that Jesus, this so-called king, is pointing directly at Jesus, taking all of the focus off of this man, this thief, this robber who is hanging there with his own sentence above his head. He can't even see it. You know, that's human nature as we've discussed, to ignore what's going on in you, but seeing all too clear what may be going on in someone else. Some blame others for their inscription. You know, that particular thief that was crucified there to Jesus, next to Jesus, the one that was angry, there's no doubt in my mind, he was an insurrectionist. He would have been angry at the government. He would have been angry at the Romans. He would have blamed the Romans for what they did. No doubt he would have looked out in the crowd and he would have seen other people who were also zealots but hadn't been caught yet. And he would have blamed them and he would have been angry at them. He would have looked at the religious people that were so corrupt and in the back pocket of the government and he would have been angry at them. Angry, angry, angry. And to top it all off, he's clearly angry at God because this man who is so-called the Son of God, at least in his eyes, he is blaspheming him and making fun of him. It is that way sometimes. Do you know anybody that angry? I hope you're not that angry. That when something happens, all you can see is what society, others, everything that bad that has happened to you is what others have done to you, all the while ignoring the inscription over your own head. They're the ones who put that over my head. They're the ones who called me a thief. I'm not a thief. They're the real criminals from what they have done to us, our oppressors. All the while ignoring what's over their own head. And then also some never believe they have an inscription. Some never believe They have an inscription. Uh, This would sum up the Jews who went to Pilate and said, listen, don't call him the king of the Jews. Only that he called himself the king of the Jews. And then they went out to the cross and mocked Jesus and made fun of him, all the while ignoring their own corruption right in their face. It was so thick they couldn't even see it. Some never believe they have an inscription at all. Don't forget the people who crucified Jesus did this believing they were doing God a favor. Some of us are so self-deceived we cannot see our own inscription above our own head that says what we are. And that is a sinner. Which leads me to the final thing, which is this. Some see their inscription and own it. 
Only these can see the king and his kingdom. I want you to look with me on the screen in Luke chapter 23, verses 40 through 43. The other thief. Now, what's ironic, if we tie Luke into Matthew, Matthew says he was crucified between two thieves and that both of the thieves reviled him and insulted him. That means that one of these thieves was saying exactly what the other one was saying. But then came a moment of clarity. I don't know when it happened, how long they had hung on the cross. Maybe hearing all the insults, this man who had been looking at Jesus and focusing all the guilt on Jesus and putting all the focus off of himself had a moment of clarity and began to think about who he was as an individual. The text says this, but the other rebuked him. This is the other thief speaking to the thief that blasphemed him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Do you see what has just happened? This man has embraced the inscription over his head. No longer it's pointing at the crowd, pointing at the Romans, pointing at this guy Jesus in the middle, pointing at the heavens and blaming God for all this garbage that has happened in his life. All of the anger comes crashing down when he has a moment of clarity and he realizes, I deserve this. Sure, other people have done things to me, but I'm suffering because of what I did. And I deserve it. And he all of a sudden, the first thing when he realizes who he is, he is able to perceive and understand the hypocrisy and the hatred of his friend being crucified with him when he was joining in the insults with him just a few minutes before. But in a moment of clarity, seeing who he was and understanding, we know that to be the work of the Holy Spirit that opens our hearts that we might see our sin. Verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, we have talked all through the book of John that nobody understood the kind of king that Jesus had come to be. Not Mary his mother, not John the Baptist, not the chief priests or the scribes, not his disciples. Nobody understood the kind of king that Jesus came to be until we get to this one man on the cross who in the middle of his crucifixion, the Holy Spirit 
shines his light on his soul and he sees himself for what he is and that is a sinner deserving to be punished for his sins and he looks at Jesus and while everyone else is looking at Jesus and calling him this so-called king of the Jews this man says King Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom the first person in the entire Bible to ever embrace Jesus as the king for the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring. Which tells us something. How in the world can you see Jesus as the King of Heaven? It only happens when we first, you and me, can embrace what we are without Him. And if you can't do that, you'll never see King Jesus. R.G. Lee is a pastor of yesteryear. He was longtime pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church down there on Bellevue Boulevard in Memphis, Tennessee. In fact, I was told years and years ago he came and preached at First Baptist and came and preached his famous Payday Someday sermon. Dr. Lee... Um, course he had passed away long before I was born my dad was just a baby when Dr. Lee had passed away he passed away I believe in the, in the 70s if that's right now my dad would have been a teenager or something like that um, anyway Dr. Lee was preaching at Bellevue and he gave an invitation a response just like we're about to do and give people an opportunity to respond. And he told people the gospel that how Jesus came to die for sinners and that if sinners would put their hope and trust in Jesus and trust Jesus, he would save them and forgive them and promised to take them to a place of heaven and home to be with him when they die. And at the end of the service, he extended the invitation. The psalm began to play and then he was standing there at the front of the church and a lady stepped out in the aisle and she came forward. Well-dressed, put together. And she got to the front and uh, she stuck out her hand and Dr. Lee stuck out his hand and she said, Dr. Lee, I uh, would like to be a Christian. And he said, oh, well, praise the Lord, sister. I'd be happy to lead you in a prayer. He said, have you asked Jesus to save you? And she said, no, but I want to. And he said, okay, well, begin with me. He said, let's bow our heads and you can pray right after me. And they bowed their heads and Dr. Lee said, say this, Lord Jesus. She said, Lord Jesus. And he said, I know that I'm a sinner. No response. He said, well, maybe this lady's hard of hearing. Let's try this again. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. No response. Third time. It's charm, right? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And finally, he looked up and he said, Ma'am, ma are you okay? And she said, well, well, Dr. Lee, I'm not a sinner. And he said, oh, ma'am, then you don't need a Savior. You can go back and sit down. And she turned around. She walked back to her seat. But before she got there, Tears started to roll down her face. 
And she turned back around and came back down with a double pace. And she said, Pastor Lee, I know I'm a sinner. I know it. And I need Jesus to be my Savior. Friend, there's only one way into this kingdom. You have to embrace that there's nothing that you can do yourself. And that you are a sinner. And if you ignore the inscription over your head, you'll never make sense of the inscription over his. And to not acknowledge you're a sinner is to miss that Jesus is your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And Lord, it's such a humbling thing to think about the inscription of sinner, thief, liar, blasphemer, adulterer, whatever, fill in the blank of all these sins that could be placed over our head. It's so embarrassing to think about all the foolish things that we have done. But Lord, that's the only way in. We must acknowledge that we have sinned so we can see You as our Savior. You don't forgive excuses. You forgive sins. And as long as we are pointing the finger at others and excusing our situation and our sins and blaming everything but ourselves, Lord, as long as we're doing that, we'll never see You as the Savior. Lord, will You save us from our own anger? Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in this room or watching online that has never acknowledged their own sin, Lord, that You would enable them to do that through the power of Your Holy Spirit right now. And Lord, they would come to You as their Savior. Lord, perhaps there are other things that are here that need to be done. Perhaps You've led people here to join First Baptist. Lord, I don't know exactly how You're working in the hearts of Your people today. But Lord, I pray Your Holy Spirit would have His way. For it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.